Welcome to the Ambition Incubator podcast. Whether you're a seasoned professional, entrepreneur, or keeping your edge sharp until the time is right to launch your master plan, you're in the right place. I'm here to share with you what I learned on my quest to find the best techniques to elevate your potential and master the art of success. I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. As an entrepreneur, I've built and supported successful businesses for nearly two decades. In this podcast, you'll hear about the tools developed at the cutting edge of what we know about human biology and intelligence, and the people who use them. Stay tuned to hear about neuroscience concepts and hacks, and interviews with experts that will help improve your game. This, my friend, is where we take it to the next level. Hey there, and welcome to today's episode in which we'll be looking at the secret curse of productivity. To start with, let me ask you, how does it feel when someone thinks you're lazy? Is there anything worse than the shame of being judged for not pulling your weight? Well, it turns out these feelings are pretty deep rooted. And like so many other aspects of our humanity, they can work for us or against us. What if I also said that what we often perceive as being productive can be both false and counterproductive? And that sometimes this poorly interrogated notion of productivity is what's holding us back. Let's go back in evolutionary time. As social animals, contribution to the group is an age-old measure of our worth. And for others in the group to value that worth, it's got to be evident. So we work long and hard and that is applauded. We're creatures of so many contradictions that it's not even funny. On the one hand, it has to be hard. But on the other hand, we expect talent to be something magical and inherent and reject the fact that hard work and persistence is really what creates much of what we see as natural talent. For example, musicians or ballet dancers or athletes or writers. And here's another thing that really throws our little brains. Sometimes the best and most productive work looks like mm, not doing very much at all. It's really counterintuitive. It's quite hard to do the sort of deep work I'm talking about here anyway, but often this additional layer of judgment being passed on it means that it just doesn't get done at all. We'll come back to that, but let's take a little detour here. As anyone who's been listening over the last few weeks will have noticed, there's nothing I enjoy more than a little detour. If you've ever used a mobile device or a social media account, then you'll no doubt have been invited to play a game like Candy Crush or some other tile matching game. Have you ever wondered what makes these so attractive? I mean, if someone were to say to you, here's your assignment, match three coloured things, you'd probably think it was meant for a preschooler, not a grown adult, right? And yet, apparently 92 million people, at least some of whom are not preschoolers, spend three hours a day playing Candy Crush. Why is that? And how does it tie into our tendency to allow ourselves to be busy, but not necessarily productive? Okay, let's look at what happens when we start playing a game like this. The parts of our brain that are activated are those same parts that are involved in both reward and addiction, not to mention novelty. Plus, us humans love patterns. We make meaning when we spot patterns. And then we start seeing more of the same pattern. It's why we regularly imagine that we see faces in various random situations, like the way the bubbles formed on your coffee or the back of that car. They're not faces. They were never intended to be faces. But we see two eyes and a smile anyway, because our brain's pattern-seeking tendency can't help it. So finding three of a kind in a tile-matching game is pretty soothing. I'm more Sudoku type, but still, that's just another type of pattern-matching, as is making words rhyme. That's another favourite of mine. 
And let's not forget that these games give us a sense of productivity. We effectively think we're doing a form of work. It's an activity that builds a score or a collection of points or helps the virtual fairies create a new village or whatever it is in the particular version that you're playing. So we have a sense of achievement, however pointless. And at the same time, we found a way of perhaps filling our commute or chilling out. In any case, we're not left alone with our thoughts, which it turns out a lot of people don't like all that much. What's wrong with a little downtime, you might wonder? Absolutely nothing. In fact, it's incredibly important for your brain to have periods where it is relaxing. But we have to query whether filling time with a game like this is constructive mind-clearing relaxation and self-care, or if it's a form of numbing self-medication, something that keeps us away from the cacophony of worries and stresses that are just waiting to chime in once we're listening. There's another mechanism that these games use which keeps us hooked too, and this matches, ironically, a concept from the idea of flow states and peak performance. Now, anyone who's watched a small child trying to do something knows that they can be pretty bloody-minded about it. But quite often, if it's too hard, they'll give up completely. So parents and educators are ideally trying to find that sweet spot between where the child currently is and where they could be with a little application and engagement. So too, with the seemingly infinite levels in these games, rewarding enough and accessible enough to get to, but not so difficult that we end up feeling bad about ourselves because we can't get there. We like to complete things. There's a thing called the Zygarnik effect, which says that until we've completed a task, our mind keeps going back to it. So we like to complete the level. It gives us a sense of closure. Now, let's think for a minute about the 92 million people playing this game every day for three hours. You know, I tried to calculate all the hours lost, but to be honest, the numbers were too depressing. So here's what happens if one person plays these games or alternatively scrolls through media feeds, which kind of work the same way on your brain by tapping into your desire for novelty and reward. So three hours a day, every day for a year, equals 27.3 40-hour working weeks. I mean, that's like almost half another job, isn't it? Yeah, I, I really wish I hadn't started calculating this because when you start to roll these figures out to include the millions of people spending time on these things, it's more than a little perturbing, don't you think? But I guess there are a couple of things that we need to look at here. One, how we value our time, and two, how we measure it. Not having enough time is a belief that comes up again and again for would-be business owners. But of course, many of us aren't measuring our time so we don't really know how much of it we have or how much of it we're using. As Lord Kelvin said, if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. And Michael Dell often gets credit for a very similar quote, but I'm pretty sure Lord Kelvin got there first. So think about it for a moment. Now, I'm not saying that you're the type of person who has a game addiction, although you clearly would not be alone. But if someone said to you, I will give you 27 weeks this year to work on your business or your fitness or a new qualification or to spend with your family, all you've got to do is delete the apps. Would you do it? <laughs> and you're probably thinking, yeah, but what about people who have to sit on a train for two hours a day or something like that? There's nothing to do except play a game and try to relax, right? I mean, these days, unless you bring a book or can work on the move, all anyone's got is a phone and access to pretty much the entire sum of human knowledge. <laughs> you're way ahead of me, right? You know where I'm going with this. But this takes me back to busyness the state of almost compulsively needing to keep busy, the idea that we should be doing something. It's one of the boxes I've mentioned in previous episodes that we often don't even know we're in. I remember a friend telling me a story from his childhood. He was just mooching about in his dad's farmyard, leaning against a wall, not doing anything in particular. When his dad came around the corner, he demanded to know what he was doing. Nothing, replied the startled child. 
Well, at least look busy was his dad's advice. Which takes us back to our social animal. Don't be the one that people think of as lazy, as not contributing. To be honest, I had trouble with this myself for many years. As a child, I had a strong preference for reading over, say, stacking firewood. And that was perceived as laziness. That I would rather be reading or writing, my work of choice, than stacking wood. And of course, the feelings of shame and guilt that go with those accusations can last indefinitely. And they can prompt us to go out of our way to look busy instead of considering what might be the most genuinely productive use of our time. The culture and society in which we're raised can have a direct impact on that which we consider valid work. And we often have to break free from any deeply ingrained beliefs to discover the most productive thing that we can do. In many instances, our choices can be informed by short-term needs, such as generating income. But the question we always need to bear in mind is whether we're investing our time or whether we're just spending it. If we're investing it, there will be a payoff. If we're just spending it, then it's going to be gone forever. So why are we talking about games and time and what's the link to neuroscience? Funny you should ask. That lovely word neuroplasticity comes up again this week. Our brain's ability to wire and rewire itself, or in other words, to learn and to change. Neuroplasticity, like so many things, is neither a positive nor a negative. It's just something biological that happens, and the end result can be beneficial or otherwise. It happens when neurons that repeatedly fire together wire together to form a neural pathway. And the more they do that, the more we repeat an action or a thought, the more likely it is to become something we do without conscious effort. And after a while, a coating of a substance called myelin seals the deal, and before you know it, it's happening almost without you noticing. It's like that beautiful and simultaneously deeply troubling idea that a habit can go from being something that you do to being who you are. Let's go back to our friend, the tile game. So say you've been invited by a friend to play and you've got a break or a bus ride and you think, why not? And before you know it, your pattern recognition has gone into overdrive and you've spent 20 minutes quite happily filling your time. Your brain is occupied enough to let go of worries, but not so occupied that it's taking up any serious energy. All too soon, it's a habit, and I mean that in more ways than one. Why does it seem so much easier to adopt unhelpful habits than constructive ones? Great question. Perhaps because, like we talked about in episode one, our brains aren't for thinking. And perhaps because in evolutionary terms, if we conserved energy, whether we would otherwise have used that through physical activities or through deep thought, then our brain was happy that we were safe and certain. We were probably within the known, the tried and tested. Because let's face it, deep thought quite often leads to people setting off on perilous adventures or trying new things with a good chance of being very unsafe. Curiosity killed the cat, they say, and I'm no anthropologist, but I can imagine that through the ages, the wisdom that was handed down about what could be eaten safely and so on was probably not taken lightly. Of course, we're now in a place where many people can't even connect the food they eat with how it's produced, so we have a whole other kind of issue. So are there any ways that we can support the sorts of habits that we want or help override the ones that we don't want? Absolutely. Track them, stack them and crack them. One of the things we really need to do is audit our habits and our use of time. In other words, we need to track it. Once we see how much time we're spending on something, we can start to identify where the leaks are on the boat, so to speak. For those of you who assume that your time is already accounted for, this is an excellent exercise too. Again, back to the things that aren't measured. We have a finite amount of time. Are we spending it or investing it? In addition, 
There's a Garrick effect kicks in here. If you're not clear about what you should be doing at any given time and working with a more organic idea of getting through things, then you will almost always have a sense that there is something else that you should be doing. You know that feeling of knuckling down to something and having this distracting niggle in your head that there might be something more urgent or important that you should be doing? That is really destroying your potential to get important things done and completed. And funnily enough, it can be eradicated by deciding in advance what it is that you will do with any given block of time. So for the trackum stage, identify how you spend your hours, days and weeks and decide if there are any areas that are not constructive. Social media and emails are quite often big culprits. You'll no doubt notice that this takes conscious effort. That's the bad news. But the good news is that we can build new habits with that lovely neuroplasticity. And yes, it takes a little time, but again, we can ask ourselves, is this time worth investing or will I just keep spending at my existing rate? How long does it take to form a new habit though, to lay down the tracks of a new neural pathway? Well, it's not the laying down that's the problem, it's the strengthening that takes time. Generally, we hear about a month of focused effort to create a new habit, right? Unless you're doing something like playing a game on your phone, in which case the habit seems to build all of its own accord. But once we've created that new habit, we also need to remember that we more than likely have a much older and more established one still laid down in our brain. And that takes a bit longer to erase. So that could take another 30 to 40 days before we start to find ourselves less prone to habit relapse, otherwise known as falling off the wagon. We've all been there, right? This is where the second step comes in. Stacking habits helps us to mimic what those games do so effectively by pairing something that we want to make into a habit with something that we enjoy doing anyway. For instance, someone who's trying to make a resolution to get on a treadmill every day might pair that with watching an episode of their favorite show as they do so. Or someone trying to keep their step count at 10,000 a day might form a routine where they walk with a friend. So they get to catch up and have a rewarding social interaction while walking. Plus there's a whole body effect, which means we're more likely to keep doing something so we don't let someone else down. When we've taken the time to track and stack those habits, we can get back to how our habits and busyness get in the way of doing more important things that equate to time investment. And so we can then start to reassess these in terms of our overall effectiveness. And then we can finally crack them. If we can get on board with the fact that they are holding us back from living the life we want to live, or being the kind of person, leader or innovator we want to be, for example. And now we're back to the start. Those ideas about working hard, staying busy, or how the devil will make work for idle hands and so on. They're just a collection of habits and beliefs too. And that means that we can change them. Of course, it does help to know why we want to change them because that's when we feel motivated. If you believed that working less was synonymous with being more effective, would you actually work to get to that place? Or would your concerns about whether people thought you were doing enough keep you on the hamster wheel? If you believed that being pickier about what you did with your time would give you more freedom to do things that would multiply freedom, would you do that? Or is it just too much effort to make that shift? And finally, if you made a decision and you knew in your heart that this was the way to make life better, more sustainable, more rewarding, but that it wasn't necessarily going to be easy to get there, would you find the help and support you needed to do it? Or would you just think, well, I can't do it myself, therefore it can't be done? Motivation, by the way, is a fickle friend. And what can seem like the path to salvation one day can literally seem like some kind of trial by torture the next. 
This is where we need to make sure we've got plenty of support mechanisms in place to get us through those patches, because that's where the work is done, where the new neural pathways and habits become part of who we are, not just things we do. Resistance is strong when we try to make changes. Our brain doesn't necessarily want to make changes because that takes effort. And our brains aren't really all that keen on making efforts when they're already happy that we're safe. So if you've got food, your life's not under threat and your needs are pretty much met, then your brain will probably put the brakes on if you suggest rocking the boat. And sometimes that resistance is amplified by the people around us. One of my reading group members met with ridicule from her family when she decided that she was going to start a business. They actively poked fun at her, probably because they knew on some level that her newfound determination and drive might somehow mean that they would have to reevaluate their expectations of her. But full credit to her, she knew what she wanted and she persisted. Of course, she did have support and backup for this through our group. And so she was able to get that encouragement and support from people who believed in her and wanted her to succeed. That's not to say that her family didn't want her to succeed, but they were comfortable with the way things were, so they didn't really feel like embracing change. But of course, they eventually got used to it and her business continues to grow and develop. And for a totally different example, I'm a recovering chocoholic, by the way. I had a serious habit for quite a long time, but for almost a decade, I have eaten zero chocolate. Zip, not a bite, not chocolate flavored anything, not hot chocolate, not chocolate ice cream, nothing. And trust me, that was not a decision I ever thought I'd be able to make. But one day, as I enjoyed a big, beautiful bar of 70% Cocoa Swiss, I realized that either I could continue as I was and do serious long-term damage to my health, or I could stop. So I stopped, like literally there and then. I didn't even finish the bar. I guess you could call it my chocolate epiphany. And epiphanies are great habit-changing triggers. There was chocolate lying around the house for months after that, but I had decided that I didn't eat chocolate anymore. I had stopped being that person. And 10 or so years later, my teenage kids don't even remember a time when I ate chocolate, but I do. Those reward pathways are still there in my brain. I have full sensory chocolate dreams. The smell, the taste, the way it melts in your mouth. None of that is gone because the brain doesn't really unlearn stuff. We just have to give it enough support and good reasons to do other things instead. So, why am I telling you this? Well, to reassure you that you've got this, I guess. Whatever habits you currently have, you make a choice to either reinforce them or reconstruct them every single day. And going cold turkey isn't the only way. If you fall off the wagon, get back on the horse, as they say when they're making a metaphor salad. It's not all or nothing. It's improvements over time. Small, simple steps if you don't have an epiphany moment. So wherever you are now, you have that awesome thing called neuroplasticity to get you where you want to go. There's a lot to chew on in here, and for me at least, it's not chocolate, but it all comes down to this. When we create awareness of how our brain operates, it allows us to make choices with a clearer view of what will help us to achieve what we want and what might get in the way. For me, discovering some of these things has been a game changer, and I hope it'll create possibilities for you too. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'm going to put some links in the show notes that you might want to check out. And if something here got you interested or made you think about something in a new light, get in touch. I'd love to hear about it. Until next time, I've been your host, Deirdre Morrison, and this is the Ambition Incubator podcast. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, your weekly source for brain science tools, tips, and techniques. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. 
It's why I want to make sure that every single episode contains game changers with the potential to elevate your performance and enjoyment to the next level in all areas of life. If you want to catch up between shows, check the show notes for my links. Meanwhile, if you hit subscribe right now, you'll always be first to hear when the next episode is available. Until then, my friend, imagine the possibilities.